Happy Saturday. It's February 10th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And Michael, we are going to keep this episode very cheerful because I have not been sleeping at night and you have two guesses as to why that is. It's because of feud? Very close, Michael. I've been watching True Detective late at night again. I should know better. I mean, this is the fourth season. We know how incredibly creepy it is, and yet I will never learn. Are you watching this? No, I don't like creepy things. I mean, you're probably smart because you're probably sleeping like a baby. Your aura ring approves of your behavior. But I have to say, it is an addictively good show. Jodie Foster's incredible. The acting across the board is great. Amazing writing. Anyway, it's a really riveting show, Michael. Here at Morning Meeting, we hit a big milestone this week, and we just want to thank you all. We notched our one millionth download. So, Ashley and I just say thanks to all of you out there who've been listening and made this big achievement possible. Especially our co-editors, Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. On top of that, we have a tantalizing show, as Ashley notes. First, it's been a year of me- meltdowns in the media, and Brian Stelter is here to tell us about one of the craziest. He's got the scoop on how and why a startup called The Messenger, which promised to reinvent journalism, burned through $50 million of investment in less than 12 months and has gone down the tubes. Then, we all know Vladimir Putin wants to win at all costs, but it's not just with his troops in Ukraine. As Andrew Rifkin reports, the Russian leader is now forcing Russian musicians to support his war. And finally, it wasn't all that long ago that British Airways was known as the world's favorite airline. Today, however, most Brits think of it as the Britney Spears of air carriers. And Mark Elwood will tell us all about it. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Well, Michael, let's start with Brian Stelter. I mean, there's nothing we love more than stories about media companies burning through money. And Brian Stelter has a doozy of one of those for us today. He is the former anchor of CNN's Reliable Sources and a former media reporter for the New York Times. Also, most importantly, at least for me, he is one of the executive producers of The Morning Show, the show for the ages. Welcome, Brian Stelter. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Brian, The Messenger was the flash in the pan media story of 2023. Michael and I were just talking before you came on that we can't actually remember even reading it once it went into publication, but we read all the buzz around it. So tell us exactly what The Messenger was, what it promised to be, and whose idea was this thing anyway? This was the most ambitious and arrogant media launch Maybe not even just a 2023, maybe of the decade thus far. Although I guess I should count CNN plush. I had a little hand as one of those failures also. The Messenger was the brainchild of Jimmy Finkelstein. This publishing veteran comes from a wealthy family of publishing history. He was a part owner of The Hill and The Hollywood Reporter in the past. So he had real credentials. In fact, the day that I was let go by CNN, Jimmy emailed me wanting to meet up, wanting to talk. I think he probably wanted to talk about launching The Messenger. When I found his email in my inbox the other day, when I was researching this story, I thought to myself, wow, I really dodged a bullet. Thank goodness I didn't call Jimmy back. But many people didn't. I understand why. There weren't a lot of job openings in media in 2023. And here was Jimmy Finkelstein promising to launch a new kind of news, a nonpartisan, neutral news source covering everything from politics to wellness to business to to health, you know, to all of it. He really wanted to create a giant new newsroom from scratch. He said he was going to hire hundreds of people. And he did. By the end, there were about 300 staffers who were all suddenly let go last week. I mean, this is an idea straight out of 2013. They raised $50 million and they managed to basically put that in the front yard and light it on fire in, in 11 months. Who gave them this money and what 
was the plan to make money. Yeah, the money came from investors like Josh Harris of Apollo, it largely from figures who had been investing with Jimmy in the past. Like, for example, a bunch of these financiers had made a lot of money when The Hill was sold. The Hill.com, you know, covering Washington. They had made bets with Jimmy before and they had been winners before. So I think in some ways there's a logic to going back in on his next idea, his next venture. But here's where it did not make any sense. Here's where it was illogical. This was a business model that was so outdated that even many of the staffers who joined didn't think it was going to work. It was a business model. It was all about getting as much traffic as possible and then selling big brand advertisers against it or programmatic ads from places like Google. That's very much a BuzzFeed model of 2013. And we have seen a lot of those startups from a decade ago fall apart. BuzzFeed stock, you can buy it from basically a penny now. That idea that you're just going to be a scale play and appeal to everybody, have something for everybody, it has, it has failed time and time again. Again. And by the way, to the extent that there are sites already covering nonpartisan neutral news, trying to cover Donald Trump and Joe Biden all completely evenly, there are lots of places that say they do that already. So it wasn't as if he was posing something that didn't already exist in the marketplace. I guess the theory was that he could get billions of page views and sell lots of sponsorships against that. And because he had succeeded well in the past and with lots of other partners, some people were willing to try again. And Brian, those people who were willing to try again, how did they find themselves once they actually got in the job? I mean, it sounds like it was a bit of a grind in terms of being a content factory. A content factory is exactly the right term. And when I talked to a couple dozen staffers about this for this new article, I wanted to hear more from the victims than the villains. There's been a lot of press in the last week about like, why did Jimmy Finkelstein do what he did? And what were these the top editors thinking? I was more interested in talking to the rank and file staffers, many of whom were skeptical this was going to work, but were getting paid above market rates. So it was worth trying for a year or two. And many of whom were told by Jimmy Finkelstein, don't worry, I've got three or four years of runway. I have plenty of financing to make this work for at least a few years before we can make it sustainable and then keep it going from there. These staffers came from places like CNN and The Post and other places, CNBC. Some of them left really good jobs to try this startup, partly because maybe they believed in the mission or maybe they wanted to take a risk. They would walk into these grand offices in Washington and West Palm Beach and in New York, offices that mostly sat empty. Here we are, you know, we're all talking remotely. One staffer said to me, it was as if Jimmy acted like there had never been a pandemic <laughs> and workplace culture hadn't changed one bit. And so it was those sorts of experiences, staffers coming in and realizing, wow, we're paying millions of dollars on rent and no one's coming into the office. There was a chill right away among rank and file staffers who thought this is not going to end well. Brian, how long did this thing last all in? Less than a year because it launched last May and then it collapsed uh, at the end of January. So this was buzzed about for basically all of 2023. But it was clear by the end of 2023, it was clear by last December, that money had run out, that the money had dried up, that Finkelstein either needed to find more financing or this thing was going under. And for staffers who felt totally abandoned, who felt kind of left off on their own without leadership, without communication. This was, it was gobsmacking, especially if you're, let's say you're a 24-year-old reporter who you're in your first or second job and you're living paycheck to paycheck. And all you want to do is report on the beat that you love, edit the stories that you love working on, just make your small contribution to the journalism world. And you feel like you've been totally screwed and abandoned by this owner and these financiers that they didn't have a plan, that they didn't have a roadmap. That's very much the vibe now in the Slack group that these ex-staffers have. And that's what I really focused on for this piece because I wanted to show the silver lining, the one silver lining to this 
epic media fail is that all these staffers who barely even knew each other, barely even knew who worked at the place. There was no staff directory. There was no communication. Now they've actually formed a community. They're actually helping each other out. Tips for getting unemployment insurance, ideas for new jobs. There's this community that's come out of this disastrous implosion. Brian, I'm tempted to say, what is the future of media? But I'm not going to do that. But instead, if you had $50 million in your pocket to invest in a new media venture, what would you do with it? Well, the future of the media is all of the above. But there's going to be big winners and big losers within that answer. I think there are ways to super serve audiences, lots of different audiences. I'm trying to avoid using the word niches. But there are ways to tap into fan bases, areas of passion, different demographics, different audiences, and serve them in a way they will be loyal, they will be subscribers, they will be clicking on your ads, they will be attending your events, they will be a part of your community. That is very much the direction that the media writ large is heading in 2023, which is the opposite of the messenger, the opposite of the be something for everyone, claim to be nonpartisan, but actually have lots of political views. I mean, that was another thing I should have mentioned about Finkelstein, a pal of Donald Trump wanting to schmooze with Trump, wanting to be at Mar-a-Lago, wanting to make his Trump friends happy. That goes very much at odds with his claim that he was going to be this nonpartisan neutral site. What I would say is you just own it. In 2024, you just own it, right? You own that you want to be at Mar-a-Lago. You own that you want your site to be viewed as a center-right or a MAGA media site. But instead, he was trying to be this all-you-can-eat buffet in an environment where I think as media consumers, we're all getting better at going to this place we want this, to going to that place we want that, to tailoring our consumption to what we're looking for on any given moment or any given day. And so the $50 million answer is you go out and you super serve a more specific tailored audience. You think about them more as a community, people that you can serve in lots of different ways and not just you know through clickbait. Brian, listening to you talk about this, I was reminded just all of a sudden thinking about, you may remember this, a little something known at the time as the fanciest dive. What was up until then, one of the biggest media fails ever. 40 years ago in 1983, Time Inc. back then was going to launch a magazine, TV Cable Week, which they were going to sort of like cover all the revolution coming to cable TV. I just looked it up. That only lasted six months and it lost $47 million, but that was 40 years ago. This is a hyper condensed version of that for 20 for 40 years later. Now what you've got here. It definitely is. There's been a lot of layoffs and cutbacks and changes in media. We're going to continue to see places be reshaped. We're going to see huge successes as well as epic failures. The Messenger, in a way, is unique because it was launched so suddenly and then it was shut down even more suddenly. There were so many broken promises. There was so much potential that was squandered. And what I'd like to hope, and as I always try to find something optimistic in these stories, is that there are people that are going to come out of this with better ideas, right? The superior startup idea. They're going to learn what went wrong at The Messenger because they had a front row seat. And then they're going to go build the 2024 versions that actually are sustainable that actually do super serve specific audiences that are able to have sustainable business model. Because if I know one thing about media, I mean, I've been covering all this stuff for 20 years, right about TV. If I know one thing, it's that people, most people, they actually want real information and real news. Most people do not live down conspiracy rabbit holes like Donald Trump does. Most people want to know what is true in the world, and some of them are even willing to pay for it. But you have to meet them where they are, on their terms, delivering what they want. You cannot just be a content factory anymore. Well, speaking of success or lack thereof, let's get Mark Elwood on here to tell us about the rise and fall, and mostly the fall of British Airways, once one of the world's great airlines. Mark Elwood is one of our contributing writers who often covers travel, or as he calls it, froth in all of its forms. Welcome, Mark Elwood. Hello. 
Okay, Mark, you and I talk about this all the time because we unfortunately have to fly British Airways all the time. But take us through what a typical experience on BA is like these days. Okay, I think a typical experience, you know, when you picture airplane hell, when one of those, that episode of 30 Rock, when Liz is in the back of it and she's surrounded by fest, a plane festooned with dirty clothes because everyone's been on there for days. People are screaming. You're not sure if someone has gone down the emergency slide. That feeling is what it's like to fly BA right now. And it breaks my heart because as a native-born British person, BA used to be the pride of the country. Well, so take us back to that, Mark, because it did. There was a time, maybe, what, 20 years ago when it was the world's favorite airline. So how did it get there and how did we get here? (laughs) I mean, I don't want to spoil the story too much, but I would say some of BA's problems are industry-wide and some of it is all down to BA's Perhaps poor choices in hindsight suffered like the whole of the aviation industry when 9-11 made flying really, really scary for an awful lot of people. The shockwaves of that, unheard of in the industry comparatively from history or even the pandemic, just the psychological impact. So VA struggled then and it struggled to right itself from that. But it also had a problem because Concorde, its big halo effect, the glamour, the clear jets they're playing, that had its own safety issues. BA had to retire that. On the heels of that, instead of choosing to say, right, how do we think big? How do we invest for the future? They brought in a businessman with a bottom line's vision for the airline, not a visionary who thought, how do we reclaim BA's glory day? He made choices that kept BA solvent, but arguably sort of shaved off its patina of luxury. Can you hear the saddest of my voice? I can hear it. Also, Mark, I mean, this has impacted you because you're a journalist of many things, but you cover a lot of travel and you do a lot of traveling. And I mean, to be a frequent flyer on BA is a special type of hell, right? I mean, the delays, the obfuscation, the staffing issues. As you write in the story, you were in Capri and there was some sort of an air traffic control issue and your flight was canceled or there was bereavement. Something happened. Tell us what happened in Capri. I will say, again, this is a safe space, right? I'm just complaining about being marooned in Capri. There are worse things being marooned in Capri. But it's more about travel. This is the point. I was very lucky that I was able to solve it. But that's partly because I travel for a living. When I think about some of the people caught up in the issue and an older tour group in their 60s and 70s, many of whom ended up sleeping in the airport or in a rat infested, I use that word, the rat infested metaphorically motel, a flea baggy motel in Pompeii, as people showed me the pictures. I think the issue was Italian air traffic control had a strike on a Friday. That is not BA's problem. Absolutely. You roll over. That's a 24-hour delay. Those things happen. BA had an issue where a plane that was originating in London on the second day could not take off because very sadly, a crew member had a sudden bereavement. What did baffle me, and I don't quite understand, is that many cabin crew, I'm sure they're cabin crew listening to this, are kept on standby for those very unexpected reasons. And somehow they couldn't bring someone in despite being at their global hub. Fast forward, at some point the next day, that flight does take off. Thank goodness. My group of people are stuck in Naples at this point, ready to go back to London. And I think the moment when we really felt for the crew on the rescue flight, and it did feel a bit like a rescue flight, was when the person came onto the tannoy and he said, hey guys, I know this has been hard. And he was great. He was very sort of like, we get how you're feeling. But just so you understand, before you get too angry with us, the Italian crew who were cleaning this plane did five rows and then they timed out and they put down their mops and got off the plane. 
So I asked my crew if they wouldn't mind cleaning the plane on your behalf. If we hadn't done that, we wouldn't be taking off. And that is the moment where I wish what BA could do is find that man, give him a medal and say, thank you very much. That's what we care about. And basically adopt that attitude. It's all about recovery from problem. When they said that, we went from sort of bitching at the crew and being like, oh, we hate you. You're just British Airways. To thinking, gosh, thank you so much. Can't believe it. And you want to empower the people to say, I know you have a tough day. Gosh, I feel for you. And we're going to go above and beyond. We're going to do our best. And that is a game changer. Now, Mark, there's a misconception in the UK that it's owned by the British government and that they're out to get us. But tell us a little bit about the ownership structure of this company and who's in charge and who's to blame, most importantly. So the British government did, of course, have a big stake in British Airways way back when. But as part of the great privatization that took place under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, BA was a jewel that was sold off to the private sector and thrived under some visionary leaders who really saw the ability to have a premium carrier. It is now part of a giant conglomerate with Aer Lingus and a couple of Spanish airlines. It's part of a bigger group. It's just one little cog in the wheel. It is no longer British Airways. It's another international company. But I do think if you look at its peers, if you look at Air France, KLM or Lufthansa, I would argue they are not government entities anymore. They're free markets operations. They have a lot more cachet than BA's managed to cling to. And I think that shows you that maybe we are fair to carp a little more at BA. I think nothing shows how far it's fallen, though, as you note in your story, though, that you think this is the, not just the crown jewel of British air travel, but even the Prince and Princess of Wales won't take it on their ski trips to Europe, right? They're on EasyJet now. I mean, they've turned their back on it. I think you're making a great point, Michael, because actually it does say something. It sounds like a trivial point. But the idea that there is prestige in going for the funky, cheap thing is a bit like all of us saying, oh, I get my caviar from Target. They have this amazing. Did you know the Target caviar is amazing? And that slight pride there is now in shopping at Lidl for your smoked salmon, but putting it on a nice plate and no one can tell the difference. The Prince and Princess of the Wales flying on EasyJet is a marker of how our priorities have changed and how they're not going to be in for a dig for being on EasyJet. They're going to seem like people of the people, man and woman of the people. Well, Mark, I think I can speak for all of us on this. The thing about BA is we do have other options. EasyJet and Ryanair don't go everywhere. And as you say in your story, it's a little bit like the Britney Spears of Airlines, Nespa. Explain that analogy. Because my point about this, I write this story more in sorrow than in anger. We are rooting for BA to be amazing. Do you know how Brittany, you look at her and the Schadenfreude isn't there. You're just like, oh, no, don't do that, Brittany. No, I want you to be okay. British Airways is the company that as a native born Brit, Ashley, you live in London. I will always have London in my veins. You want BA to be amazing. I take no pleasure in the fact that it's not great right now. So this is a plea as much as a brickbat. Say, so please, British Airways, reclaim being amazing. I'd love you to be fabulous. But right now, if I had a choice transatlantically flying home to New York, you're going to find me in the Virgin Clubhouse with the smiley people and a glass of champagne and brand new planes every single time. Well, you've just made Richard Branson's day, Mark. Thank you very much. Mark Elwood, the one and only. <laughs> love talking to you as always. Thank you for this great story and all your amazing reporting. We love you. Bye. Love it. 
this story probably just like hit you out of nowhere because you never take British Airways. But for those of us who have to suffer through it on a daily or at least on a monthly basis, let me tell you, it's no cakewalk. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. Happier days will prevail. It's always EasyJet. It's positively Soviet, which is probably a good transition to our next story, courtesy of Andrew Rifkin. Right. Well, if the scene of British Airways makes your head spin, just wait till you hear about Eurovision, which is this incredibly bizarre pop music competition. Andrew Rifkin is here to explain it all. He is a screenwriter, journalist, and Russian affairs specialist. Welcome, Andrew. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Andrew, you've got a provocative story this week. Vladimir Putin, who you would think would have his hands full with a war and an economy and descent at home, he seems to also be yearning to be something of a music producer or sort of get on the music scene. So tell us what you've reporting this week about how he's looking to take on Eurovision. Well, there's a saying in Russia, a talented person is talented in everything. And Putin just might as well fit that description. With Eurovision now, of course, Eurovision is going to happen in later this May in Sweden. And Russia has been banned from Eurovision since it was banned within hours after its tanks rolled into Ukraine. My article focuses on Russian obsession with Eurovision. It truly is like the Olympic games there. Maybe even more so because not everyone's into sports, but pretty much everyone's into campy pop music down there. The piece focuses on mostly on how Eurovision, which started for Russia in the early 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union, and it started with Russia sending its earnest, salt-of-the-earth pop music acts that people really loved. And they kept losing terribly, like horribly. Someone would be a number one singer in Russia. They would get the 17th, 18th place in Eurovision. But at some point, the Russian state, the Kremlin, took control of the narrative and Russians started winning or at least making it to the finals. And the singers, the songs, the performances, it all became this tailored propaganda action taken by the Kremlin to represent itself on the world stage. And yeah, well, this article is mostly about how Russia is using these artists and these songs to portray itself on this European stage as a very peaceful superpower that just wants some lands and that's it. Well, so now, as you report, ever since the invasion of Georgia, they were sort of kicked out of Eurovision. And now Putin wants to start something called Intervision, right? So what's he going to do here with Intervision? Well, Intervision, imagine Russia, North Korea, Tajikistan and Belarus singing and competing with each other. That pretty much is what your uh, Intervision, sorry, is going to be. Now, it's not Putin's idea. The contest itself is not Putin's idea. It was actually a Soviet bloc alternative to Eurovision. It first aired in the mid-60s. And it's mostly countries of the Warsaw Pact that performed there. And the contest was somewhat big. Right now, Russia's isolated. I would say most countries from the Warsaw Pact actively hate Russia and they're fortifying their borders against it. So Russia's left with very few allies and friends. And the same people are going to be doing the singing who are doing the missile supplies to Russia nowadays. If they are going to revive the contest, it looks like it's only going to have a few countries present. They're all going to be autocracies. And from what I'm guessing, Russia's going to lose in the sense it's definitely going to win the contest. There's really no doubt about that. But it's going to lose in the sense that it won't have the same European stage 
to use as its propaganda vessel. That won't happen. It would be giving its narrative to the lakes of North Korea and Iran, which already share its narrative. It would be preaching to the choir as opposed to singing songs of love and peace to Europeans while its tanks would be ruling over European countries. So this is kind of a musical version of a proxy war in a way, right? I mean, it's sort of like, as you would sort of say your story, right? Yes, I would say music. Russia weaponizes everything and music obviously is also weaponized. I would say that Whatever you hear in America about the Taylor Swift conspiracy, in Russia, it's actually true. So Russia did use Eurovision as an extension of its foreign policy. And you could see how I describe it in the article. You could see how it changes with the wars and with oil boom and with Putin's reelection and everything. So this time, Intervision, it would also be an extension of Russia's foreign policy, but now it would reflect this new reality where Russia is isolated, where it can only deal with a bunch of these rogue pariah states. And yeah, well, they would be singing to each other. As one music critic that I interviewed for the piece said, he would definitely watch it. So would I. Andrew, it's a propaganda machine, but it works. I mean, some of these stars have really broken through. I still remember Tattoo, the global pop group from 2003 that you cite in your piece. And then we had Cerebro. Like, who are sort of the biggest Eurovision success stories? And do you think there's any opportunity for them to replicate that success with the new competition? Or were those just flukes? Well, the biggest success stories, like you're right, absolutely tattoo. But the thing is, in Eurovision, most European countries, they send these obscure DIY groups, bands that play at like local dive bars and are just quirky and weird. Russia played to win. It sent its number one act. So when Tattoo was, for instance, in Eurovision, they did The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I think three months after doing Eurovision, they were already a huge global pop phenomenon. Russia's biggest success story is Dima Bilan. He won Eurovision back in 2008. He's the only contestant to actually be selected by the Russian people. Otherwise, all the other Eurovision contestants in Russia were selected by an internal committee, like many of the things decided in Russia are. So that Dima Bilan, he did win Eurovision. His performance cost just over a million dollars. It included a Stradivarius violin being played on ice, which if you ever want to see Stradivarius on ice, you should definitely look that up on YouTube. And right now, Dima Bilan, he could be seen in the Donbass, which is the occupied eastern part of Ukraine, where he's delivering supplies to the Russian soldiers. He's becoming a very pro-war kind of artist in Russia, like many are, but his transformation from this jolly, uplifting, positive singer at the 2008 Eurovision to someone who is basically in the trenches is, well, shocking, probably, to say the least. Andrew, you end your story on a rather dystopian, depressing note, essentially suggesting that propaganda is no longer enough for Putin. Like his means have become even more extreme when it comes to getting his message out. How do you find that? Well, I think that a lot of people say that sanctions aren't working against Russia, that Russia still manages to get some of its high tech devices needed for the Russian missiles and that Russia still manages to get its oil across to various buyers in the world, people, countries that are still willing to buy from Russia. And that's true. But the part of sanctions that really is working is that Russia no longer has a soft power. It does not have public diplomacy. That era for Putin, that era is gone. And that, I would say, is truly a successful move by the West. Russia no longer has its public outreach in the form of television channels, which you could watch everywhere. They're banned 
in Europe now. Russia's banned from sports competitions, which were huge, a huge patriotic boost for Russians and propaganda tool for Putin. And of course, Eurovision, which is, it's a political contest in its nature, one that's rather innocuous. Putin, of course, used it to glorify Russia and it's, it's very, well, let's just say fascist ideology as of late, especially. And that has also been taken away from him. So while it is somewhat dystopian, what's going to happen with the intervision? with North Korea sing-along and everything in that sense. It's also quite a positive note that someone like Putin did lose a huge chunk of his audience in the West that he had and that his propaganda now, even if it comes through a duet of 17-year-old twins like it happened in Russia in 2015, I think, that propaganda won't be disseminated and it won't be heard by anyone else. And that, I think, is a very good thing in these otherwise very dire circumstances. After reading the story, I have to say, like, I'm tempted to go look at the old Eurovisions on YouTube and watch them. I mean, because it sounds to me like an exercise in camp that few have dared to ever even approximate. That's true. And few countries have gone as far as Russia has to actually win. So if you want to check out some of the campiest performances, do Google Russia Eurovision and you're going to see how well you're going to see for yourself. When club music intersects with 1950s Stalin-esque propaganda ideas, it's a little backwards. On ice. On ice, exactly. Stradivarius on ice, not a drink. It is a musical entertainment idea. Andrew, thank you so much. You've given us not only a lot to think about, but also a lot of hours to kill on YouTube. Wishing you a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. What do you have to recommend to us? Well, besides Curb Your Enthusiasm, which we will get to next week, so I want to get a full dive into it, but I want your take on it. Yeah, Have you seen the new Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Michael, is this a remake of the Jennifer Aniston Brad Pitt marriage ender? It is. It's a rethinking of the movie that gave us Brangelina. But this one is a limited series, and it stars Donald Glover, who I will watch in just about anything from Atlanta and other projects, and Maya Erskine. The show's got this breezy, screwball energy, and their performances, I think, are really charming. It's fast and witty, a lot like Glover's performances. It's got a lot of action as well, which is sort of like when you sit through a two and a half hour Mission Impossible, this is great because it comes in short bursts, really propels it. So I like it. It's quite stylish, of course, as well. And that's thanks in part to my former GQ colleague, Madeline Weeks, who did the wardrobe on it. So it's called Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and it's on Amazon Prime now. And you, my dear, what do you have for us? Well, Michael, I have a podcast I'm obsessed with. Have you listened to Joanna and the Maestro? No, never heard of it. What do you got? Michael, as you know, Absolutely Fabulous is one of my favorite shows of all time. No surprise. And Joanna Lumley's performance as Patsy is one for the ages. I think we can all agree. Turns out she's an incredible podcaster as well. And she and her husband, Stephen Barlow, have a great podcast called Joanna and the Maestro that I'm embarrassed that I discovered a bit late when they had Bradley Cooper on to talk about the music in Maestro. But it's really all about classical music, the people, the players, the trends, the songs. And they bring you into your home for this really intimate conversation about this incredible art form that is so rich and so alive today, even though some of these incredible pieces were composed hundreds of years ago. So it's wonderful. It's called Joanna and the Maestro and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Please enjoy. That's it for me. And we want to thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a marvelous weekend. Happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate. For those who don't, we wish you a wonderful day as well. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. And just thank you to everyone again for getting us to 1 million downloads. (laughs) 
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carnell, Senator Stanley, our Chief Operating Officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.